Welcome to the Trochia Podcast Series. In relationship, we can experience all kinds of things. We get to experience wisdom. When we're together with other people, we learn good things, things that makes, makes us better, uh, act better, behave better, think better. We get wisdom. But also, when we're together with other people, we have the potential of becoming more foolish. I mean, how many of us have hung out with the wrong person, and pretty soon we're starting to behave foolishly because they behave foolishly? Proverbs says, hang out with the wise, and you'll be wise. Hang out with the foolish, and you're a fool. That's what happens. So relationships have the power to bring us in one direction or the other. But that's not all. In relationships, we can experience enjoyment. Probably the greatest joys of our lives come when we are together with someone else. And I don't even need to tell you examples of that. I know each of us experience that. But also in relationship, we experience our deepest pains. It is in relationship that we experience acceptance and connection to others. And our sense of identity is found as we build relationships. But it's in relationship we experience the most painful of rejection and isolation. And as we're going to study today, in relationships, we learn about this thing called love. What is really love? What does love do? And how can it change our lives? How can it change our relationship? You see, love can be so easily under, underestimated. We, we make it a lot less than what it really is. And an example of that is this week, my daughter's getting married in April. I'm so excited. And this week, we were interviewing florist. And so we visited this florist, went over all the plants with the flowers, super exciting. And then after we get done, these are florists I've never met. Okay, this was our first time we've met. And we're saying goodbye, shaking hands. And one of the florists grabbed me and hugged me and said, I love you. I don't even know you. You know, and I know that he meant it with really good intentions. I'm, I'm convinced he was just trying to be nice. You know, he's just a joyful kind of person. And he just came out of his heart. I love you. But really, when we study love today, we're going to find out that when we do that, we're kind of underestimating love. We're sort of saying, I don't get what love is because somehow I don't know you and I'm willing to say something like that. And we put it in our notes. We put it everywhere. So I just hope as we walk out of here today, if you say, when you say those words, they will have more weight than just a quick passing by statement. So let us look, if we could, at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you have your Bible, meet me there. We're going to start in chapter four, um, verse 4. And this is a passage, as you find yourself there, you can use your phones, you know, that's fine too. Uh, we allow phones in church. Uh, if Once you find yourself there, you know this passage. You've heard it prayed at, or read at weddings. It's very commonly read at weddings. It's a beautiful explanation of what God love is. And certainly when you're getting married, you need this. But that's not all this passage is about. That's not the reason why Paul even wrote it where he wrote it. There's a very specific purpose with these set of words, and that's why I want us to study them today. So first we're going to read them very quickly, and then I'm going to go back, and we're going to study each one of these. Look at what it says about love. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. 
Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. Now, if Paul could speak about love in fewer words, he would. But this is the nature of love itself. It's so complex, it needs to be explained by all of these words. And you see, the words that he's using, they're actually, you know, he wrote this in Greek. And the beauty of the Greek language is that every word has a lot of nuances of meaning. You know, in an English word, we just put a new word for everything. But in Greek, every one of these words has tremendous meaning. And so let us go through them a little bit slower this time and see what each one of these words means. And I gave you plenty of space on your outline to write some of this stuff. We begin. Love is patient. It means love is willing to wait. It endures injury without seeking immediate retaliation. It's not indifferent to what happens. It recognizes something occurred, but love is slow to react. It's patient. Love is kind. Love recognizes that others also are broken like we are. They carry a heavy load as well. So love is gentle and soft. It does not envy, which means it doesn't resent. Instead, it celebrates the achievements of others. It celebrates other people. It doesn't boast. It doesn't show off or make itself better than. No, it doesn't even compare itself to others. You see, love is looking to bring good to others, not good to itself. Love is not proud. It's not puffed up. It's not arrogant. It's not overly self-confident. It celebrates others. It celebrates the differences between us and others. You see, love sees the image of God in everyone else, including ourselves. Love does not dishonor others. It doesn't, it's not rude. It does not criticize. It does not shame or discriminate against others. But instead, it respects and it honors and it lifts up others. Love is not self-seeking. What that means is love is generous. Love is selfless. It puts the benefits of others above his or her own. It doesn't ignore its own individual needs, but it's still generous towards others. And then love is not easily angered. It doesn't, it's not irritable or tense. It doesn't tend to isolate, but it's self-controlled. It never allows anger to cause it to sin. And then it keeps no records of wrong. It forgets. It forgives. It doesn't pay back for injury. Now, some of us are historians. You know, we get into an argument, and they're like, you know, last week you did this, and in 1992 you did that, and then, you know, three days later you did this. I mean, we're just rattling off every single time this person did this. But look what love does. Love says it keeps no records of wrong. Love does not delight in evil. It is just. It is honest. It is faithful and trustworthy. And finally, love rejoices in the truth. It doesn't suppress the truth. It doesn't minimize it or ignore it. Rather, it rejoices in the truth, even if the truth perhaps brings some uncomfortableness to it. So Paul is describing love with all of this depth and width, and yet, you know, we throw this word out so easily. So my question is, is love a verb, an action, or is love a noun? 
a, a person that comes into your life, a place that you fall into, um, an experience. Is love a verb or is it a noun? What do you think? It's a verb. It's an action. You, said, you see, Paul writes this using 15 verbs. This is what we just read. He could have used adjectives to describe love, but he uses verbs instead to highlight the fact that love is a verb. It's dynamic. It's active. It's not something static. It doesn't stay in the same place. It's always moving, always doing. And as I told you, this is not a hymn that Paul wrote for us to sing or just pray over churches. You see, what he was saying is the church in Corinth, if you know much about the church in Corinth, this community was a people kind of like Las Vegas. Everything goes. And so they, they, whatever they wanted to do, it was okay to be proud. It was expected that you would be proud and that you would be boastful. And Paul is saying to this church, to the people, pretty much by giving them what love is, to say, this is not what you're doing. You're doing everything but this. And, you know, before you think the church in Corinth was worse than us, please remember they remained as one church. We have split thousands of times since then. So we're no better. We still struggle with this issue of love. But then here's my most favorite part of what this writing does. What Paul is doing, he's describing God himself. See what happens when we replace the word love with God. And I want you to read this with me. Look how it reads. God is patient. God is kind. He does not envy. He does not boast. He is not proud. He does not dishonor or others. I'm not hearing you. Come on, play with me. He is not self-seeking. He's not easily angered. He keeps no records of wrong. God does not delight in evil, but he rejoices with the truth. You see, when we replace love with God, is there anything in there that is not descriptive of God? No, every single one of those verbs describe who God is. And there's a very basic principle of logic. Anybody here into logic? Two principles or several principles that are true result in a true statement. So here's how it reads. God is love, right? God is eternal. So that means that love is eternal. This action, this this verb that we have just learned is a continuous action forever. And Paul makes this logical point in a slightly different way, in his own way, in verse 7. Look what he says. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Now, you see the word always four times? The Bible doesn't tend to repeat itself much. Anytime it repeats itself, pay attention. Something important is being said here. And what Paul is saying is, This is the nature of love. All those things we just said about love, it does them all the time, forever, in every circumstance, regardless of how someone else behaves. That's the nature of love. It always protects. It covers others. It always trusts, believes the best in others. It always hopes that God can work in someone else, even in us, for a great ending. We know that it always perseveres, that we can crash through those difficult points in life when we think there's no way, we don't have what it takes. The problem is much bigger than us. Love says it will persevere. It will crash through those points, always. 
That is love. It's, yes, it's a verb, but what did we just learn? It's also a noun, is God. And then this is a continuous, eternal activity. It's a big order. Anyone here like to admit that they love in that way? Right. None of us have what it takes to love in this way. We don't. The first thing we have to recognize is that true love, this love, is way over our heads. Our love is imperfect. We are broken people, so it gets twisted. It's limited, really, by our own selfishness. And so although we can be kind, we can be patient, we can be a little slow to anger at moments, can we do it always, forever? Not so much. We can't do it our own. So what do we do? What do we do in relationships when we try and try and try and we try harder, and yet we can't seem to love people the way God loves us? All right, well, the secular word has come up with a solution. And I'm only presenting it to you because it is somewhat biblical still. It speaks some truth. And then I'm going to show you what the Bible tells us. But Marcus Buckingham wrote a book, a business book, and it was really all about business, about how to be successful. It's called The One Thing You Need to Know About Great Management, Great Leading, and How to Sustain Individual Success. And in his book, he talks about marriage. And he talks that he did all this research. He's a researcher, and he did all this research in marriages, and he found something quite peculiar. You see, there's a challenge in relationships, whether they're marriage or anything else. And this challenge happens no matter how long you've been together, whether you just started, you know, you just got married, or you've been married for a long time. And it does not go away. It does not go away ever in any relationship. And it's this. There is a thing called expectations. Anybody have expectations? And we kind of get them from, you know, we get them from the movies we watch and the parents give a sort of sense of expectation. Society kind of gives us a sense for how things ought to be. That's our expectations. But there's a problem because there's this other thing called behavior. And they don't match. Can you see this okay, everyone? And so we have these expectations and they're not met because the behavior, it's hard to really do what somebody else expects of us. And it's, it, we always find ourselves expecting some, something of someone, and they don't live up to it. And that brings a gap, a frustration in relationship that doesn't go away. And here's what Marcus found out, that in marriages who have been in the sh- together for a short time or marriages for a long time, this gap was real, and it did not go away. And the other thing is, if a marriage was super happy, and they were just thrilled with each other and loved each other very much, or if a marriage was on the verge of divorce, the gap was the same. Does that surprise you? Surprise me. And what he said as he researched and interviewed these couples is that there was a difference in the way they interacted and dealt with the gap. What they put in this gap made a difference between the joy they experienced in their relationship. And so here's what would happen. You have an expectation, and you have a different behavior. What are your options? So, here's what you can do. I'll give you a story. 
I have this sort of strange habit, or maybe like, and that is that in my kitchen, in the counter, I don't like to have dishes drying out. So when I do my dishes, I either put them in the dishwasher, which we have a dishwasher, thank God, or I wash them, dry them, put them away. And so in my house, I got this little mat that you can put as you dry your dishes and then put them away. And I noticed people in my house wash dishes and then leave them on the mat and not put them away. I walk in the kitchen, and I assume the worst. They're doing this on purpose. They know that I don't like leaving dishes out, and they clearly want to just annoy me. I know it. And so I, I hid the pads. I took all the pads, and I hid them really low, on the, and I thought, that's it. I'm not going to put any pads out. Now they can't put dishes on the counter. So I'm preparing for this message, and I'm trying to think about my relationships and maybe ways in which I fail to live up to someone else's expectations. And I was thinking of asking my husband, honey, how do I fail to live up to your expectations? I thought, that could start a fight. It's not good. A Saturday before, the, before my service. So I, I thought, I'm not going to say anything. So I, I go in the kitchen. He has this big smile for me. Hi, you know. But the first thing I see, like a beacon, is those dishes on the counter. Assuming that he's doing this on purpose to annoy me. Anybody have, I know, that, that one's really mine. It's kind of strange. But I'm sure you've got these kinds of experiences. Like, like your friend who's always late and doesn't show up or doesn't show up. And you just, you assume the worst. They are doing this on purpose. They don't like me. It's their way of sort of being mean to me. And you just start making up movies that could be Oscar nominated for why this person is behaving the way they are. Anybody done something like this? I mean, any directors here or screenwriters? Okay, now, but Marcus Buckingham said what he found in couples who didn't do this, but instead did this, their relationships were better, were stronger, were more loving. So let's say an example. Let's see if I can practice my own preaching. So I go into the kitchen, I see the dishes there, and what could be my first thought? Oh, my husband did the dishes. How nice of him. And soon he will put them away. <laughs> or maybe I can be kind and put them away myself. And he smiled at me, and I just went at him right away. I mean, so you could assume, give the most possible generous explanation for why someone isn't behaving the way you want them to behave. You can fill this gap by just changing the way you think by making a choice to choose to believe the best instead of assuming the worst. This is easy. Would you agree? It takes nothing to go here and then get going. It's like a downhill roll. And it spirals and spirals and does damage all along the way. It's like an avalanche is taking everything down with it. This is hard. This takes a little bit of practice. And it means that we might have to do it again and again. We get better over time. It becomes a little more natural the more we do it, like a muscle that we're working out. And it spirals too, but more like a helium balloon. It, becomes, it makes your relationship lighter. You see, it has power too. It does work, and it is biblical. And we can do this. And it can make a big difference in our relationships. Not getting rid of the gap. The gap is still going to be there because, listen, first of all, if you lower your expectations, which is the way some people try to fix relationships, does that work for anybody here? 
No. What happens immediately is we build resentment and anger and disappointment, and we start to lose respect for someone else. Doesn't work. If we try to change someone else's behavior, how successful are we at that? I've tried. Huge failure. It does not work. It never works. What does that do? Now they have resentment and anger and disappointment. This doesn't work. So we could use this method. Yes, it works and it's it's biblical. And obviously, according to Marcus's research, it makes a difference in relationships. But here's the thing. I am thinking in this room, some of you are probably dealing with a relationship that's not so easy. A relationship for which you have tried not to assume the worst. You have tried to believe the best. You have trusted. You have hoped. You've put yourself out there to the max. Now, yeah, you haven't been perfect, and you haven't done love the way God does love, but you're at that wall, and some sort of positive thinking isn't going to break you through it, right? This method could work for a lot of things. It could make our relationships better everywhere. But when you feel you're at that wall, this is not going to work. Not enough. You know, I, I've gone through a divorce. I've hit that wall and I crashed. And I caused a great deal of pain to my children, great deal of pain to myself and to others. And here I'm married to Jim. The first year we're having these silly arguments all the time. And I reach a point I thought, dear God, I don't want this to happen again. I don't want to hurt my children again. I don't want to fail again. I need a miracle. And you know what I did is I decided to go to the room in the house where you can actually get privacy. Anybody know what that is? Yeah, I went to the restroom. I put down the lid. I decided to have a little conversation with God. I said, God, okay, it was a desperate one. God, you have got to love Jim through me. I don't have what it takes. I don't. I get it. White flag. I know where I'm headed if I keep this going. This is going to be yet another divorce, another failure. God, you love him. You created him. He's a fallen man. I'm a fallen woman. You've loved me. Can you help me love him your way, not my way? You know he answers those prayers. He hears those calls. And he gave me little ideas at times when I was sort of wanting to do the assume the worst or the Puerto Rican impulsive thing, which is this, or this. You know, he would slow down in us. Maybe you need to apologize for your part in this. Maybe you need to just just touch. Maybe you need to say, I'm sorry, or I understand, or let me understand, let me try to understand. I don't know. He's guided me slowly through these steps, these moments when I don't have what it takes And you see, what Paul is telling, why this is so important, why the placement of this passage matters. He's describing love as a a gift of the Holy Spirit. In John, it says, God is love. And we love because we have experienced God's love. That's the reason we can love. The Holy Spirit showers upon us God's love. It's the first gift of the Holy Spirit in Galatians. And Paul is saying, seek out that gift. Ask God to give you that gift of the Spirit. 
Let him shower that over you. That's why I guess I did in the bathroom. I didn't know it. God, shower your gift upon me so that I can somehow, in my own brokenness, share it with my husband. And he is faithful to answer. He is faithful. And I know some of you are there. I know some of you are probably, this is, in a, this is like a giant private space where you're asking God, God, pour the gift of the Spirit in me. Pour that love that I don't have, that you have. Bring heaven onto earth. Remember, God is love. Love is eternal. When we love the way God loves, we are bringing heaven onto earth. God, bring heaven onto earth through me, this broken, selfish, stubborn vessel. And give in. Help me love this person. And so as we respond now, as we go into the services, I want to remind us again of what God says about his love. This is what Paul says again. It says, love always protects. Read it with me. Love always protects. It always trusts, it always hopes, it always perseveres, always. And so as you go to the different response tables, you come to the table of communion, you are reminded, as we are told in 1 John, what is love? Love is God who came into our mess, who gave up his life to redeem us so that we could have life, who paid the price of our our, our sins so that we could be saved. What better picture of that perfect, eternal love? But when we take communion and we're reminded of that truth, maybe you need to go to the cross. Maybe like me, you have to go to God and confess, I don't have that kind of love. I'm sort of really good at assuming the worst, God. And whatever else you're fighting, listen, Jesus went to the cross to take it and put it to death. Give it to him. Maybe you need to go to the prayer wall and write out your prayer, whatever it is that you need him to help with. Ask God to develop in you the gift of the Holy Spirit, the gift of love. Give that to him. And we have a prayer warrior who's going to be up here, and if you want someone to pray with you, for you, and join you in this request of God, please do come up and ask him to pray for you. And then we have the candles, because see, here we get reminded that God's love is eternal. Now, that that candle, you know, it will go out. But God's love will never go out. And that, we can be the light of the world when we love through his love and not through our imperfect love. And you can go to any of these stations and all of them in whatever order you want. You take your time. You think of that person that's already in your head, that relationship that's giving you such pain and struggle. And you ask God, God, do a healing work. Help me love the way that you do. Thanks for listening. We at Trochia are committed to helping you grow in Christ. Please join us at trochia.org. That's T-R-O-C-H-I-A.org, where you can sign up for our monthly e-newsletter, find blogs, videos, Bible study lessons, and more podcasts, all dedicated to Christian discipleship. And make sure to like our Trochia Facebook page to receive short daily devotionals. Be encouraged as our Lord's grace and peace goes with you.